Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Money and me on your money. Only on Money FM 89.3. Well, a lot of significant market moves to digest. The U.S. Federal meetings, Federal Reserve's final meeting for 2021 concluded with a big announcement. It's going to double the pace at which it scales back bond purchases and put inflation back at the top of its agenda. The Fed looking on track to conclude its bond buying program early 2022 rather than mid-year as initially planned. And it's also signaled a three-quarter point increase in the benchmark federal funds rate for next year according to the median estimate. So a lot to digest right here on Money and Me. Three rate hikes in 2022 expected. Zero rates until max employment is achieved. What sort of a reaction are we seeing from the markets? Why are people buying instead of selling? Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow, joining me live this morning. Good morning, Arun. Good morning, Michelle. Uh, what is your reaction to the Fed's announcement? Quite a big, significant pivot, right? A significant pivot, but that being said, I mean, kind of like the tone that Powell took a month ago, you know, a couple of weeks and a couple of months ago, it actually seemed that this was relatively benign for the market, right? I mean, if you look at the price action last night, we opened up relatively lower. And then as and when more and more information and speech came out, the market rallied quite a bit. I, I think the market was actually anticipating that the Fed might be a little bit more hawkish. I mean, mm. three rate hikes in 2022. And based on the dot plot, which is, you know, future predictions even beyond that, we're looking at two rate hikes in 2023 and two rate hikes in 2024. So I think the market actually took that to be quite a positive sign. I mean, in all fairness, when your inflation is running at like five, six, seven percent, that's the highest in the last like 30 years. Unemployment rates coming down quite dramatically over the past a year right after the COVID bottom. It does seem that, dare I say, I think the Fed actually might still be a little bit too conservative in spite of saying, you know, three rate hikes and, you know, getting rid of the bond buying a little bit earlier and stuff. And I think the market took that a very positive sign that they're not going to be stepping on the brakes that quickly. And hence, uh, we saw a rally, which I think is going to be, in the short term at least, contingent to no other news coming out from the Fed and obviously the Omicron virus kind of settling at its current state. I think we could see a nice uh, Santa Claus rally to the year end. Wow. That would explain why the Nasdaq jumped more than 2% on the back of the news. The Dow and S&P 500 also both closed up more than 1%. Do you think the Fed's plans to taper off bond purchases and likely raise rates three times next year, um, is that going to significantly affect the way you approach investing? Not particularly, to be honest, because, I mean, at the end of the day, no one could predicted the market price move yesterday, nor can I think anyone can really predict what's going to happen in the very short term, right? So from the perspective of investing, I still believe it should be a long-term play, analyze the balance sheets, make sure the profits are solid, cash flow positive, solid competitive edge or competitive moat in that capitalistic ecosystem. From that perspective, I don't think my investment thesis changes, Mm -hmm. but it's always interesting to be in touch with the markets and see what's happening. And dare I say, you know, once again, I I think the Fed is being still a bit too optimistic that inflation, even though they've removed the word transitory and stuff, I still think from that perspective, just by looking at the numbers, it does seem that the Fed is still being a little bit 
optimistic in a way that inflation will kind of taper off next year. Unemployment rates will continue to come down. They've bumped up the growth estimates also. On the back of all of that, it would seem that a further increase in interest rates would be warranted. Because, I mean, make no mistake, three interest rate hikes in a year is, you know, on the relatively higher end scale of things, the way the Fed works. But you're talking about like all-time lows uh, on the current interest rate base that's pretty much never happened, ever. So coming off from such a small base, it's more important that, you know, if you're ending calendar year 2022 with interest rates still at less than 1%, mm-hmm. inflation at 6 unemployment at 35 growth of the GDP of the U.S. at least at 4%, that is quite a Goldilocks period for equity investors, right? I mean, if just thinking about it, taking a step back, 20,000 feet in the air view. So from that perspective, I still think, uh, you know, equity is definitely the place to be. And uh, again, not uh, fixed income. What could this mean for Asia? So the Fed, not the only central bank that's weighing in on monetary policy this week. Bank of England meeting tonight. Indonesia Central Bank, the Philippines Central Bank also reassessing their policies. Do you think this tightening by the Fed puts pressure on central banks in Europe and perhaps even here in Asia Pacific to raise rates as well? Uh, Excellent question, Michelle. I, I mean, I think if you look back over the past, like, 30 years, right? It was the Asian central banks who were always lagging uh, what the Western central banks, I mean, especially with all respect to uh, uh, the UK, everyone always looks to the Fed, right? And as the Fed starts tightening, then suddenly there's a huge collapse in Asian markets because you just know that the Asian central banks have to follow suit, even if the strength of the underlying economy might not be as strong as that of the US. I think what we've seen quite interestingly, pretty much at least for the first time in my career, that Asian central banks are kind of taking the lead on this. I mean, Korea coming out, Singapore coming out a while back, there's been tightening already to some extent in the Asian ecosystem from a large part. So with that being said, I don't think there's going to be that big an effect where previously if the Fed started raising interest rates, you know, Asian currencies got sold off quite extensively. Uh, People got very jittery about holding uh, Asian debt. I think this time around, it's quite different, where uh, Asian central banks have a better grasp, in a way, of how things are going over here. They don't have such an overinflated balance sheet. Uh, You know, the debt levels within Asia are not as big a concern. And hence, we and not to mention, obviously, very strong economic fundamentals. So from all of that perspective, it does seem like Asia actually might come out of this tightening cycle, like over the next two or three years, I have no idea again about the next couple of months, but I do feel that, you know, Asian economies in general, with the backing of their central bank over the next, say, two to five years, would actually come out a lot stronger out of this. And I think that would be a first, right, which is pretty amazing to see. This is all, though, contingent to uh, the Omicron virus and generally COVID in general, because... Mm. Sadly, the vaccination rates in uh, the more emerging Asia, I mean, not Singapore, obviously, but uh, Indonesia, Vietnam, Philippines, is still lagging quite substantially. So from that aspect, just a little bit concerned about that. But that being said, you know, over the past six, eight months, especially, we've seen India, Indonesia, Vietnam, Philippines go through a really horrible phase of COVID 
flip side, though, is uh, one would hope that, you know, everyone has gotten naturally immune to this now. Yeah, so, so we don't have to worry about when the boosters run out. Exactly. This is I mean, the issue. Or, Forget even boosters. Maybe they don't even need the first vaccination shot, right? Because once you've gotten it, mm. apparently the naturally created, uh, you know, immune system is a lot stronger than even having a vaccine. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, there was a huge price to pay in terms of loss of life and all of that, which is extremely sad. But from an economy perspective, going back on to growth, mm-hmm. uh, one can hope that these powerhouses, especially India, Indonesia, even Vietnam to a large extent, gets this massive boost over the next five years, especially with less capital potentially going into China given the right. you know, the US-China trade wars and all of that. So yeah, there's a reason why Vietnam is now being called, you know, the potential future uh, manufacturing bowl of the world. I, I think that's, you know, a, a bit uh, on the optimistic side <laughs> of things, but still, right, even if it can grab like 5-10% of what was the capital that was going into China, if that can fly into Vietnam, Indonesia and stuff, that's a massive amount of capital for still relatively small economies. So from that perspective, I'm actually quite bullish the Asian region uh, in general. And hopefully, yeah, all the smaller boats rise with that bottom move for Asia. A question here on the balance sheet of the Fed. Do you think the Fed's ultimate reduction of the balance sheet hasn't done that yet, right? Uh, Jerome Powell coming out to say we need to keep the balance sheet at a particular level. Do you think an ultimate reduction of the Fed's balance sheet, which is a swollen $8.7 trillion, would that have greater market reaction than, say, interest rate hikes? Uh, I mean, it's always a combination of uh, both of them, right? Uh, to be honest, I'm still shocked that the Fed is even still buying bonds at this stage, <laughs> right? It just doesn't make any sense that for the last at least like three to six months, I would say, maybe even longer for that matter, why the Fed is still expanding its balance sheet. I mean, interest rates are all-time lows. Uh, mortgage rates in the U.S. are basically at all-time lows. It's a bit bewildering to me as to why the Fed is creating such a huge asset bubble in not just the U.S., but the world over, right? Because everyone does take cues from the Fed. And from that perspective, yes, I think as and when they actually do start reducing their balance sheet, there will be a big effect, but it's required to be done. You know, like Charlie Munger was in the Stone Conference in Australia like last week, and he was talking about how, and this guy is like 96 years old, mm-hmm. right? So he's obviously been through various cycles in the past, like 60 years of his investing experience. And he was saying the times right now are some of the craziest that he's ever seen. And that all, or in a large part, it stems from the fact that central banks across the globe have slowed interest rates at zero, massively expanded their balance sheets, leading to all of these various bubbles popping up left, right, and center. So, you know, if you ask me, is the equity market in the bubble on an absolute basis? Potentially, yes, but relative to fixed income, not at all. So in that regard, you know, capital has to be deployed somewhere, can't be cash, can't be fixed income, has to be equity, especially if inflation rates are picking up. So, and it was interesting to also hear Charlie Munger speak about how China specifically is trying to pop, to some extent, you know, bubbles that are being created within their ecosystem. And that's a sad, not after effect, I would say, but a sad effect of capitalism where you will have these bubbles, you know, coming up. It could be asset bubbles and mortgages. It could be 
you know, anything, right? Like tulip mania, cryptocurrencies, you name it. And he was actually singing the praise of the Chinese government for trying to clamp down on these things as quickly as possible before the bubble gets way out of hand. Mm. I mean, look at the property market in Singapore, right? right? Just yesterday or today morning, the news came out that there's going to be extra tax rate on it. And people are wondering why, you know, the coronavirus is still rampant and all of that stuff. But just look at the price inflation for property over here. It's been substantially high over the past like five years and for a good reason. So trying to remove leverage from the system that will especially affect borrowers in the long run. You know, Mm -hmm. people might not understand that right now, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. you could be sitting two or three years from now. Suddenly your interest rate has gone from less than 1% up to like two and a half, three percent and you aren't able to pay off your mortgage, right? Then the same people will go back to the government saying, oh my God, why did you let me take a loan, right? So I I think that's a place that the government has to pay heed to and they have to be ahead of the curve. And that's great to see that uh, Asian banks, Asian central banks are definitely doing that. Just to that point of governments needing to be ahead of the curve, I mean, to what extent, say in Singapore, we take the property measures example. The government's announced new measures to cool the housing market, came in about a couple of hours ago, goes into effect today. So second home buyers, foreigners, they're going to have to pay high additional stamp duties. This on the back, as you say, of price spikes, we've seen a 9% rise in housing prices over the past year. But these curbs are also coming at a time when we are expecting interest rate hikes next year. So if you taken a mortgage that is then going to fluctuate uh, depending on you know how your bank prices interest rates then the question i think that comes to mind is are these property cooling measures premature given the sort of monetary tightening we're expecting to come in next year i i, I don't think so michelle I, I think it's a lot more about giving that indication to the market that the government is not particularly liking the rate of increase in prices of the underlying asset, knowing fully well that in a year, year and a half, you know, once the interest rates start rising again, fast forward another year beyond that, individual borrowers might not be able to pay off their mortgage. So in that aspect, trying to temper the expectations of a huge price increase in the underlying asset might mean people will take a step back and you know think and rethink again before trying to buy into an asset which they believe that will always have an increase of three, four, five percent year on year, which for property is massive, right? Given the inherent leverage involved. So I think what the government has done, which is very smart, is trying to reduce the amount of, you know, based on the loan that you can take based on the earnings that you have, yeah. coupled with increased taxes, is a very nice, you know, initial warning flag that's being waved by them to let people know that, you know what, the price inflation that's happened in the past, don't think that even if you're struggling to meet the mortgage payments, you believe that the underlying asset price of your house is going to, you know, increase by so much over the next three, four years, it might not even make a difference if you can't afford to make mortgage payments because you can always sell the house off and make a profit on the back of that. And that's the problem that happened in 2007, 2008, right? Where people had zero down payment no earning income, but yet they went into this asset class because they could see that the price is going to appreciate so much. It had already, and it is going to be in the foreseeable future. So in that regard, I think doing this as a first firing a warning shot is in a way a lot healthier to the market. Because if this leads to individual consumers or people who you know are looking to potentially overextend themselves and go for a slightly bigger place, 
because they believe the asset will always increase in value and stuff, this will make them take a step back. And I think that will give them extra time to see how the interest rates actually evolve and not just look at the current 1% interest that you're paying or potentially are going to be paying, but suddenly seeing, oh, wait a minute, you know, I was looking at paying a $2,000 mortgage. This has suddenly become $2,500. Okay, does that mean I should still go in? And now if I look at property prices for the past one year, they're kind of like flatlining because of all these extra measures. So does this make the most sense? I mean, if it's an absolute necessity and you're, you know, building out your family and everything, then obviously, by all means, right? But from all the other aspects, especially when it comes to, you know, foreigners having to pay an extra amount of tax, the government has enough capital coming in from Indonesia, China, Switzerland, uh, the UK, US, that's already causing some kind of uh, discontent uh, within the local population here. But just putting a clamp on that right now itself, I think is a very smart uh, long-term decision. Yeah, and the fundamental question, I suppose, you know, how much house does one really need comes to mind? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, sadly, given COVID times, maybe a little bit more of a house, but, uh, you know, (laughs) at the prices they're at currently, I don't know. (laughs) Well, hopefully it keeps things affordable for the rest of us, but I can imagine sellers thinking, you know, what will this mean? A little, you know, there are going to be worries out there from sellers um, in terms of how depressed prices could be for the private market, for the public market as well. We'll continue to explore this, of course, here on Your Money. In the meantime, speaking of where your money could go, let's talk about bond music backed by rights. Apparently, bond investors can soon buy a piece of the music catalogs of pop country and classic rock musicians of the likes of The Who and Tim McGraw. Some $304 million worth of asset-backed securities supported by publishing and sound recording rights are being sold by a private equity firm, Northleaf Capital, and it includes other income streams on over 52,000 songs. It's the latest music asset-backed securities sale. What do we need to, to know about this? Arun, and would you ever buy bonds backed by music <laughs> rights? Uh, I mean, it's just a sign of the times that we are living in currently, right? I mean, you have investors just desperate and craving for yield, pretty much. And, and obviously, banks, investment banks, that is, will try and satisfy that craving as much as they can because they profit from this. So taking any asset and securitizing it, i.e. making it into a tradable instrument that can potentially give some kind of a yield that's obviously a lot better than you know U.S. treasuries or government bonds, it seems to be like a win-win. That All of this being said, though, this is not a new phenomena in the music industry. It's been going on for a while, right? It's just picking up more steam right now on the back of this entire securitization wave. It's interesting. I think, you know, from taking a step back, looking at the music industry, Okay. right? I mean, if you look at 15, 20 years ago, Artists used to make their money by uh, obviously concerts, but then sitting and selling DVDs and CDs and all of this different merchandise. But with that came a huge problem of piracy, right? Like BitTorrent, all these other P2P file sharing softwares led a lot of capital not being circulated into the actual creator of this asset, right? The talent, the artist, the musician. So along like, you know, 10, 15 years ago or whatever, along came Spotify, a whole bunch of other music platforms that truly revolutionized the music industry. Because why will I try and sit and do a PCP file sharing, even if it's illegal? Why will I try and find out the best quality of a certain song, potentially have to go through eight or 10 different downloads, there might be viruses in them, etc., when I can basically get access to this with a couple of touches on my smartphone 
paying $9.99, right? Like $9.99 per month. It's a no-brainer. Couple of clicks, have download the app. Suddenly I have like a gazillion songs on my phone without taking up the required hard disk space and I can just stream it in HD quality. So this like revolutionized the industry, right? Like where, mm-hmm. where an artist suddenly started getting paid a lot of money. But the question was, and, all, and still is, which is why there's a problem over here. Before maybe they were earning basically nothing, given these closed wall ecosystems that the likes of Spotify or Apple Music has created, is that the house rake on these are quite high. These platforms take up 20-30% of the amount of money that's being paid by the end consumer. So basically, unless you're Adele, you're really not making that much money by even having your song listed, quote-unquote, in Spotify. So to give you an idea, uh, Spotify approximately pays, you know, 4,000 US dollars for every million streaming clicks, which comes up to less than half a cent per stream. So just imagine, you know, like the number of people that are required to be listening to your music Mm -hmm. before you're able to be paid a cent. And this is even before like recording studios take their cut and all the other middle managers, right? So it's a huge aspect of there's just too many middle managers at play in this ecosystem, leading to not so much money being given to artists. And COVID has like magnified that. So now if you're a decently performing artist. I mean, and this, this securitization of bonds will not still not work if you're, you know, an unknown person. But even if you're, you know, somewhat relatively famous, you can try to at least monetize the asset of all the songs that you have, securitize them, issue them into bonds, get the required capital, especially because the last two years, given COVID, concerts are not being able to take place. And that was a big money generator for these guys. So if you're like a mid-tier, upper mid-tier artist, how do you try and realize your wealth today? And the only way to do that is by securitizing your asset. Until, of course, this whole aspect of NFTs and, you know, this whole the metaverse and yeah. all of this digital asset uh, comes about, which I'm sure it will, mm-hmm. but it's not going to happen in the next couple of months, right? So if these right. guys need the money right now, there's no choice. Right, right. It'll be interesting to see how the metaverse provides uh, new revenue opportunities for uh, musicians as artists. Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow, we wanted to get your thoughts on Apple because Bank of America sees a 20% upside for Apple, Arun, on the back of its AR headset and VR, said to be a real game changer that could lead to new applications that require high performance hardware. And Apple, according to analyst uh, Warren C. Mohan, could make several sweeping changes in its next iPhone upgrade in 2023. And this AR headset could be, you know, the killer application for 5G equipped phones. So I want to ask you, Arun, 20% upside, does Apple have that much room to grow? Uh, I mean, in one word, yes. (laughs) This is a stock that you really do not want to be betting against, right? I mean, their ecosystem, the quality of their hardware, their marketing game is just absolutely top-notch. I mean, I'm not an Apple user personally. Really? Uh, I am an Apple stockholder, though. <laughs> so I just find it difficult to be paying $2,000 on a phone, Michelle. How have I mean, you when... resisted the Apple ecosystem, Arun? <laughs> I, I'm a very pro-Google guy, to be honest, but okay. I'm a very pro-Apple shareholder. So I, I love the fact that, you know, whenever I walk down the street or something and I see people having the latest Apple iPhone, yeah. I'm loving it, right? Because that's just a certain very, very small fraction that goes into my uh, minority ah! ownership of Apple. <laughs> But 
No, I, I mean, the perspective of the company, it's doing a very smart thing, right? Like uh, this metaverse opportunity, I think, is going to be truly revolutionizing even a lot more than maybe the internet. So from that perspective, uh, very smart for the guys to get into this game. Uh, there was a little bit of a hiccup in terms of, you know, Apple Car potentially should have been being released the last two, three years. It did not work out so well. Uh, but now they're deploying a little bit more capital into it. Uh, that being said, though, I think if they can, if anyone can pull it off in a uh, in a way that will ensure mass adoption, which means extremely seamless, easy to use, uh, suddenly you get like a billion people on this thing. If anyone can do it while maintaining and managing your privacy controls, that's going to be Apple, right? And that's their brand promise. They have the capital. They have the smarts behind it. Twenty percent, uh, you know. It's a $3 trillion company, so 20% is quite a substantial amount, like over $600 billion. Uh, is that too much? I actually don't think so, given the potential target addressable market wow. that this whole Web 3.0 ecosystem is, right? And th that, all of that being said, though, this $3 trillion is not just a random number where people have like crazy expectations of future growth. Like revenues of $400 billion net profit of $100 billion, price to earnings of like, give or take 30, assets, like current assets, right? So cash in equivalent and slightly more is $150 billion. So these guys have extremely, it's like a rock solid balance sheet, extremely, you know, fantastic products, uh, great ecosystem, uh, huge propensity to spend money in R&D and come up with the greatest products things are looking really good for shareholders of uh, Apple, even at uh, current prices. All right, Arun. Well, thank you as always for terrific insights. And who knows, maybe this year Santa will get you an iPhone, Arun. <laughs> I, I love my pixel, Michelle. I just <laughs> love it. <laughs> at at, at one-third the price. So. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow, joining us this morning on Money and Me. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.